We are His. You know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you belong to Him. I can't think of a greater reality, a greater truth in life than to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And belonging to Him means that you are the subject of His prayer life. He has been and is praying for you. But when He prays for you, what does He pray for you? John's Gospel, chapter 17, is the prayer life, or the prayer, I should say, of the Lord Jesus for us. There in John's Gospel, chapter 17, He begins to intercede, to pray on our behalf. And we've been looking at this prayer over the last few weeks. First of all, in that prayer, Jesus says He prays that we will be kept. He says that He is guarding us, watching over us. He then prays that we would know and experience His joy. He prays next that we will be kept from evil. Now, anything that Jesus asked the Father God to do, you can mark it down. The Father's going to listen, and the Father's going to go to work. I mean, we often struggle and ask ourselves when we pray, is God listening to me? Am I going to get an answer to prayer? You are the Son of God, and you are asking God for something. You can pretty much be sure that God is going to hear. God is going to answer the prayer of His Son. So as we move through the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, everything that Jesus is praying here, the Father is listening to, He is answering, and you can mark it down, that He's going to be at work in your life, bringing what the Son has prayed for into happening, causing it to come to pass, in your life and in mine. And as we go through the 17th chapter of John and we bring our lives in alignment with what Jesus is praying for us, we will see and we will experience God working in our lives. If we want to know God's will and walk in God's will and experience God's will, then read the 17th chapter of John because that tells us what the will of God is for our lives and how He is at work in our lives. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 17. And, of course, it'll be on the screen, and I encourage you to follow along and take some notes. And it is so good this morning to be able to look out here and see a congregation. Uh, For several weeks, I've seen lots of ice and snow outside the building and preached just on the Internet. And so it is great to be able to see a bunch of folks here this morning. Those of you that are joining us through social media platforms, God bless you. And thank you for being a part of our service in this way. And also, those will be listening by radio. Now, this passage of scripture, the 17th chapter of John, takes place in the courts of the temple. And if we can have the slide come up of the temple court, I want to sort of explain how the temple was laid out. The big building in the middle of this picture is a replica of the temple. And as you look at that big building, it was probably, we think, maybe as much as 18 stories high. It was quite tall. It was divided into two rooms, the holy place, and then the second room being the holy of holies. Now, you will notice that outside of the temple, there is a court. That would have been the court of the priest, where only the priests were allowed to go. Then you come out from it, and you come to a second court. That would have been called the court of the men, and that's where Jewish men only were allowed to be. Then the next court out on the outside would have been the court of the women where Jewish women were allowed. And then the final big court on the outside, that final great big court area, was called the court of the Gentiles, so-called because anybody could come into that court area. 
Now, Jesus was over on one side of the city of Jerusalem that night celebrating what we know as the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He is making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and from going from one place to the next, he has to pass through the temple compound area. And we think that where Jesus was was in this big outer court known as the court of the Gentiles. He would have been surrounded by his disciples, but also this was the time of the Passover, and so the court area literally would have had hundreds if not thousands of people packing it out at the time. And Jesus stands there in this courtyard, and he begins to pray this prayer that we have recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 17, out loud. The disciples would have heard it. Anybody around would have heard it. Now, chances are beyond the disciples, no one else would have paid much attention because the courtyard was packed with thousands of people. Everybody is there praying, and so he just looked like one other guy in the crowd praying. However, the disciples who have just celebrated the Lord's Supper with him and are beginning to wake up to the idea that something significant is about to happen would have been paying very close attention as he began to pray this prayer. So let's join the prayer in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 17 and 18. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now let's move back. To verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, what is Jesus asking for here? The word that is translated, <coughs> excuse me, sanctify is a word, Greek word that means to be made holy. And so he's basically saying, Lord, make them holy. Jesus' prayer for us is that we will be holy. Now, what in the world is that about? There are several different ideas that tend to float around about what it means to be holy. One is that being holy and holiness and having a holy lifestyle is about lots of rules and keeping lots of rules. And so the more rules you have and the better job you do of keeping the rules, then the more holy you are. I was raised in an atmosphere where that's the way being holy was defined. And so we had all the rules of the Bible, and then we added more rules. And the more spiritual you were, the more rules you added, and the better job you did of keeping the rules, the more holy you were. And the converse of that is the worst job you did of keeping all the rules, the more unholy you were. And so it was constantly a game of how many rules are you supposed to keep and adding to the rules and making up more rules, etc. Now, there's another idea about what it means to be holy is that means that somehow or another you were weird for God. And so in the more holy you are, the more weird you are. And then there's a third sort of idea, and that is that being holy is about being like some saint of days gone by, you know, you're Martin Luther the second, or you're Billy Graham the next one, or etc. Or you, you know, you know some relative that you've had in your past, or you're familiar with that is super spiritual and super religious. And so, if I can just be as spiritual and religious as this relative I've got that I really look up to and admire, I have to be holy. Now, the problem with all three of those definitions: number one, they're unbiblical; they don't really square with Scripture; and number two. 
most of us just give up before we ever get started. We look at all the rules and we say, I can't keep all the rules. And I can't keep adding to the rules. There is no way I can keep up with all those rules. Secondly, most of us don't get up in the morning and ask ourselves, how weird can I be today? I mean, some might, but most of us don't get up and say, you know, hey, I just really want to be weird for God today. So we don't, I mean, you know, if you're weird, people look at you funny and they don't want to be around you and all that kind of stuff, keep your distance. So most of us aren't trying to go out of our way to be weird. And then third, we look at these saints and we say, man, there is no way I can be like that. Or, you know, grandma so-and-so, man, she really loved the Lord and she really walked with the Lord and she was really super spiritual, but I can't be like grandma so-and-so, so I'm just not going to even bother. So most of us give up on this whole thing of holiness before we even get started because we get defeated defeated before we ever get started. Well, that's not the definition of what it means to be holy. The word holy means to be set apart for the Lord. It means that I am set apart by the Lord for Him, to know Him and to love Him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, he speaks to this idea of being separated apart for the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you or make you holy. Notice who's doing making you holy, not us, he is. May he sanctify you, make you holy completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice how comprehensive it is. He says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying that this concept, this idea of being set apart for Him is that my mind is set apart from Him, my spirit, soul is set apart for Him, and my body is set apart for Him. All of me belongs to Him. Now, the idea there of being set apart for Him is that God's got a purpose for our lives together as the body of Christ, and God's got a purpose for your life. And He wants to set you apart so that you and I can know and live out the purpose He has for us, that we can live out the destiny that He has for our lives. And as we engage that and live that out, then we're going to move into this holy lifestyle that is a living a life that is set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, being set apart does not mean that we disengage from people, disengage from the world that we live in. Rather, the exact opposite. We engage it. We engage it fully. We engage it completely. But we engage it to His glory and to point people to the Lord Jesus. Now, being holy means that He equips us in our mind, in our heart, and in our character to live out the purpose that He has for us. But question comes... Notice that it says that He has sanctified us. He has made us holy. But how does He do that? Where does He do that? I mean, if you're sitting here this morning, and you know that Jesus as your Savior, He has made you holy. He has sanctified you. He is making you holy. He is sanctifying you. But how and where does He do that? Now, going back to those definitions that I gave earlier, one of the glaring problems with those three ideas we tend to fall into, either i got to be like, you know, so-and-so, which I can't do, or i got to keep all these rules, or i got to be weird. The problem with all three of those definitions is that it is, they are totally empty of relationship. I grew up with the idea that being holy was keeping lots of rules. So I tried to keep all the rules, and I kept adding more rules. But that didn't do anything to enhance my relationship with Jesus. 
I was keeping rules basically because I was scared God was going to nuke me if I didn't keep the rules. I was scared of keeping all the rules because the people in my life, I knew if I didn't keep the rules, they were going to jump down my throat about it. But it didn't have anything to do with my relationship with Jesus. It really wasn't enhancing my relationship with Jesus and getting closer to Him by just focusing on rules. And so a lot of times what happens is we, we lose in the process of thinking about being holy or that I ought to be holy. We, we lose the whole relational side of it. And being holy and walking in holiness in its essence is about relationship. You see, God set you aside not for us to sit on the shelf and look nice and pretty. He didn't set us aside to have this long list of rules that we sweat out about or to walk around and everybody thinks we're good and weird for Him. What He set us aside for was a deeping, deepening, growing relationship with Him. The reason He set you aside is that He wants you to, to know Him and love Him and grow in a relationship with Him. It's sort of like in marriage. In marriage, you are set aside from everybody else out there that you could be in a close relationship with because the person you're married to, you've been set aside with to be in a deeper, closer relationship with than anyone else. So when you and I come to Jesus, we are married to Jesus. The Bible calls us the bride of Christ. And the reason we are married to Him, set aside for Him, is because of this relationship that He wants to have with us. Now, the relationship is called in the Bible adoption. Adoption. Romans chapter 8, verses 13 through 17. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome talks about adoption. It's very interesting that the only time that Paul talks about adoption is when he's writing to a Roman audience. And the reason for that is the context of what Paul is going to talk about. When he talks about adoption here, he is speaking out of the Roman perspective, their practices and law as they're related to adoption. So a Roman audience would have understood the concept of adoption. Now, Let's talk a little bit about Roman adoption so you can understand what he's talking about here when he gets into it. Let's, first of all, we're going to read it, and then we're going to talk about what Roman adoption looked like and then how it applies to us. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 13. Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Notice how he identifies the Holy Spirit's work in our life. The spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, let's talk about Roman adoption and how it worked in Paul's day and hence how he's taking this and using this as an illustration of what it means for us to be adopted by the Lord. In the ancient Roman practice of adoption, adoption was initiated by the father of the family. The father of the family would decide, I want to adopt. And in most cases, ladies, don't be offended by this, but in the vast majority of cases, it was sons that they were adopting. And that was because they wanted to pass the family name on because they didn't have a son. 
or they wanted more sons to pass the family name on. And also in that day and age, the inheritance went through a son. Now, adoption was extremely popular, and adoption was involved very well-known people. For, for example, Augustus, who was the first Roman emperor, was adopted. Many of the Roman emperors adopted a son or sons because they wanted to pass the imperial line through a son, and they didn't have a son, and so they would adopt in order uh, to have a son to pass it on through. Many of the Roman senators adopted. And so when you went to adopt, the adoption was initiated by the father of the family. He would choose to initiate adopting. Secondly, when you were adopted, it was expensive. Adoption was very expensive. You just didn't go to court and adopt. You had to put up a whole lot of money, which meant that you had to have a whole lot of money in order to adopt, which meant this. The adoptee was always going to move up in society when he was adopted because he was going to go from a family of a certain income level to a family of a higher income level because you had to have that in order to be able to afford the adoption in the first place. So you knew when you were adopted that you were going to be moving up, so to speak, in the socioeconomic level. The adopted son was transferred then from one household to another. And when a son was adopted in those days, he severed ties in a ceremony. He severed ties with the family that he was from originally, and he was transferred to his new family. And then, then being transferred into the new family, he accepted all the privileges and the responsibilities of that new family. The adopted son was never considered in any way to be less than a biological son that was in the family or less than any other Son. In other words, once you were adopted, you were considered and you were treated just like you were a biological son. You had all the privileges, responsibilities, you name it, even if you'd been in that son through a biological means. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, We have been adopted. And what does it mean for us to be adopted? First off, we are adopted because Jesus did what was necessary for us to be adopted. Adoption for us didn't cost us anything into God's family. It cost God everything. Just as in Roman culture, the adoptee did not pay a penny to be adopted, but the adopting father had to put out a ton of money, even so God the Father, in order to adopt us, gave the life of His Son on the cross. So, to begin with, you and I have been adopted, but we have been adopted by means of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the family because Jesus gave his life for us to be in the family. Now, folks, that means that holiness does not start with a rule book. It starts with Jesus in the cross. Holiness does not start with how well I can keep the rules. It starts with the fact that Jesus shed every ounce of blood in his body for you and me to claim us as his own and to put us into the family. That is where holiness starts, with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and with his love. It means that we have moved up. It means that we have moved from where we were living before we knew Jesus, that we had been raised by Him. 
Notice he uses the word inheritance. Once you were adopted, it meant that you had rights and you were going to be given the full inheritance of the Father. When you and I are adopted by the Lord God, what does it mean? It means that we are going to receive the inheritance He has for us. The Bible says that everything in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. We are inheriting right now everything that God has for us if we choose to recognize it and walk in it. And we're going to have it for eternity. Heaven is part of the inheritance that God has for us as His adopted children. But that inheritance also begins right now in the work that He is doing and wants to do in our lives. When you were adopted, you went into the warmth and into the security of a new family. Now, let me illustrate it this way. The Bible uses a number of different terms to describe our salvation. One of them is justification. Justification is a legal term. It means you stand in a court of law and you are declared in right standing with the law. Book of Romans talks a lot about being justified. That means when you and I come to Jesus, we stand in the presence of God, Him as judge, and He declares us righteous before Him, that is, in right standing with Him because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine a courtroom scene where a young person comes in there, and they are in all kinds of trouble, and they stand before the judge, and the judge reads off everything that they've done wrong, and they plead guilty. And then the judge says, your guilt, your prison time, your debts, the whole bit has already been paid off. And you're declared in right standing in this court. But then it doesn't stop there. But then the judge says, and furthermore, I'm going to adopt you into my family. My son's going to come and stand beside you right now. And he's going to take you home. And tonight you're going to live at our house. And for the next night and the next night and the next night, and you could imagine you're going to be living in our house and you are mine. That's the concept that God declares us righteous in right standing with Him. But then He doesn't stop there. He adopts us. And that young man walks out of that courtroom, not by himself, but he walks out with the son around, with his arm around him, and the father, the judge, walking with him. Not now as a judge, but as a dad. And they go to his home. Folks, this is where the problem is so often we make. We stop with standing before the judge and being declared right with God. That's where we stop. And we think that we walk out of God's courtroom declared righteous with Him and right standing with Him, but that's the end of it. That's just the start of it. He doesn't declare us righteous for us just to say, okay, my sins have been forgiven and it's all over and done with and I'm walking out of here. No, we walk out with Jesus. We go to the Father's home. We get to live with Him. 
See, the reason so often we miss the joy of the Lord is we think it's all about a legal relationship and once we've been set free, then okay, it's over and done with. But we don't walk out of the room by ourselves. We walk out with the Son, our brother in Christ, his arm around us, going to the Father's house to stay with him. That is the joy of adoption that he talks about here. Now, the spirit, the, the, the Father wants to adopt us. He sends the Son to die. The Son gives his life and his blood to adopt us. But in verse 15, he brings the Holy Spirit in it. The, all the members of the Trinity get involved in this adoption business. Verse 15, notice what he says there. For, he did not re- for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He says that the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we belong to the Father. That the Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. That the Spirit is a spirit of adoption so that we don't walk in fear and bondage anymore. In other words, this is what the Spirit of God is doing. The Spirit of God moves into us. And the reason the Spirit of God comes into us, the Holy Spirit comes into us, is He begins to say, this is what it means to be a son. This is what it means to be in the family. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to do everything I can to get you to understand what it means to be in the family. I'm going to put an app in your soul to help you understand what it means to be in the family. I'm going to strike every chord I can in your being so that you will understand what it means to be in the family. I want to remove the fear from you. I want to remove the slavery of sin from you so you can be free in me so that you'll be nurtured in the family. Verse Verse 15, it says that he causes us to say, Abba, Father. And this is an awesome concept. The term Abba was an Aramaic expression. And it was an Aramaic word that you would hear on the voice of little preschool children when the Bible was written. In other words, if you walked into a room and there were a bunch of little preschoolers and the dad walked in the little kids would run up to their dads and go, Abba, Abba, Abba. Now, why why would they say that? We could roughly translate it in English, Daddy. They looked at their dads and they said, Abba, because they trusted their dads. They trusted the goodness of their dads. So that's why those little Aramaic kids would say, Abba. Now, they didn't understand their dads. They didn't understand everything about their dads. They didn't understand everything the dad did and why the dad did what the dad did. All they knew was that that was daddy, and they trusted in their own childlike way the goodness of daddy, even though they didn't understand everything the daddy said or everything the daddy did or who daddy was, and they would just say, Abba, Abba, Abba. Now notice what he's saying here. He's saying that this Holy Spirit enables us, teaches us, empowers us, whatever verb you want to use, in prayer to say Abba to the Father God. What are we saying? We're saying, Lord, I don't understand you all the time. And you don't make sense to me all the time. And I don't understand all the things that there are to understand you. But I know I'm your child. 
And I know you love me. And I know I'm in the family. And I know when I reach my arms out to you, you're already reaching yours back to me. And I trust you. And I trust your goodness. And I trust that when I reach out to you and I call your name, you're going to stop and you're going to come to me. And you're going to hold me and love me and walk with me. That's the idea of what the Spirit is doing. Folks, please follow me on this. So many people say, I don't pray because I don't know how to pray. What the Spirit of God does in our prayers is He's not in there trying to give us all this fancy language to pray with. He's just trying to teach us to call out to the Father and say, Abba. Do you catch the significance of that? He's just trying to say, if you just learn to reach out to me and say, Daddy, and know my acceptance and my love, we'll take it from there. You see, if I can't ever get to the Abba place, I'm never going to get to any other place in prayer. I don't have time to preach on this this morning, but he talks about in this passage about how the Spirit prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. What is he trying to say? He's trying to say, hey, I don't understand you struggle to pray. I understand the stuff down in your gut that you don't know how to say. So I groan on your behalf. I get it to the Father one way or the other. The reason we struggle so much sometimes in prayer is we try and do this thing all on our own instead of allowing the Spirit of God to carry out what He wants to carry out in our lives. Now, what's our responsibility? Notice verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, now, key phrase here, by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is our job, our place in all this holiness? It's to put to death the sinful impulses inside of us. But notice how he says we do that. He says you do it by the Spirit. The Spirit of God enables you to put to death the things that displease the Lord. My responsibility is to look at my life under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to take the initiative to put to death in me. And the idea of this was Roman crucifixion. I mean, you make sure it is put to death. But to have it put to death, Lord, I'm going to work alongside the Spirit to put this habit to death, to kill this thing in me. And then his job is to empower us and to work with us to do that. But he doesn't stop there. He then takes us to the new place of not just doing this, of not engaging in the sin anymore, but doing what's necessary to honor the Lord Jesus in that. In other words, our love for the things of God becomes what we're after and more about. Than the sin. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's just say, and I know nobody struggles with this and no one has a problem with this in our world today, but let's just say somebody had a critical spirit, like to criticize and fuss about stuff and criticize people and all that. So putting to death means that every time I am tempted and I desire and I want to engage in criticizing, I put that desire to death. I say, no, I'm not going to open my mouth. I'm not going to say that. That's the first step. But the second step is I find a way to say something positive. I find a way to build a person up instead of tearing them down. Because that's really where the Lord wants to get us to. Not just stopping the sin of having a critical attitude, but learning to use our tongues to build people up. Now, 
That's how he's making us holy. Final thing, John's Gospel, chapter 17. Jesus is housed. Where is all this going to happen? He says, John's Gospel, chapter 17, it's in the truth of the word. Sanctify them, verse 17, in the truth. Your word is the truth. How is he going to make us holy? Where is he going to make us holy? Where are we going to know we're adopted? What it means to be adopted? How are we going to flow with what the Spirit of God's doing in our lives? He says it's in the truth of God's word. Jesus said you shall know the truth, and the truth shall do what? Set you free. Read the word. Study the word. Live under the authority of the word. Live the word of God. Let the word of God fuel your love for Jesus. Stay in this word daily until you have a fresh experience with Jesus. This is what sometimes I try to do is sit down with the word and say, Lord, I'm going to read this. I'm going to study this. I'm going to pray over this, whatever passage it happens to be, until I have a fresh new experience with you today. Right now. I'm not getting up. I'm not moving from the word until I have a fresh new experience with your, from your word with you. Because that's what God wants to give you every day. A fresh new experience with him. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about with the word in our lives. I've got my iPhone here. And my iPhone, like many of yours, has got a whole bunch of apps on it. And I use these apps for different reasons. Well, the Word of God is like an iPhone that God's given us with a whole bunch of apps on it. Okay, so let me take you through a few of the apps that are on mine. First of all, I got a photo app of all these photos that I've taken pictures over since I got this phone. And I love to go in there and sort of look through all the photos. His Word can take you down a photo journey of what He has done. And what he has accomplished. From Genesis and creation to the cross to the resurrection, you name it. He can give you photos in there of what he has done and what he is up to. So check those out. Another thing I've got on my phone is a GPS. So when I go in, I don't know where I'm going. Like yesterday I went to visit somebody. And I don't want to get lost taking a tour of Franklin County that I didn't really intend on taking. I go to that GPS and plug that in. The Word of God is a GPS for your life and for mine. It will show us where God wants to take us and direct us and what He's got in store for us. I've got Instagram on here. Instagram I love because... I follow my son on that, but one of the things I like about Instagram is the stuff has to change constantly. And so what Jonathan's posting on there one day, he posts something else the next day. Sometimes I get him post on there. They're inside of an hour. And Instagram's not a lot of words. It's just pictures and, hey, this is what I'm going, on, going with. The Word of God will give you God's Instagram for you by the hour. It will give you God's Instagram, the message that he's got for you in the moment, in the hour that he's trying to communicate with you. It's God's Instagram to you with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I got a music app on here with some of my favorite music on there. And I love to listen to the music because it helps give me a melody, if you will, for the day. His word will put music into your life. He will give you a melody for the day to get you off of the melody that you and I tend to live on if we are not careful with it. Another app that's on here is the Weather Channel. 
One time they're not advertising and trying to get me to go to premium weather. It does give me some decent weather on here. You just got one of my attitude points uh, on that. But anyway, the weather channel. Now that tells you what the weather's going to be like outside today. Folks, God's word will tell you what the weather's going to be like in your life. What God's weather is going to be like today. What he is up to. I got a, a news app on here. God's word will tell you the news of what God is doing. And what the Lord is up to in your life every day. So check out what he's got for you. The final thing is he's got text to group. And that means if I want to text to a group, I hit that app. And I can text to a group. Let me tell you what the Word of God will do when you read it, you study it, you get into it. You will begin in your prayer life to text the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the divine group. See, this Word is His message to us. It's His Instagram to us. But the Word will also teach you how to text to Him. How to be in touch with Him and His work. He wants to make us Holy. We just got to choose to move with him, live like we are adopted, and choose to put to death the stuff in us that needs to be put to death, and then get on his app, in his word, and move with him and what he wants to do in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this day that, Lord, your desire for us is to make us holy. That's what it means to be part of your family. And, Jesus, we just want to ask that you would help us to move with you in that. Lord, help us to take your word every day and to get on all the different apps of your word. To hear you, Lord, to see how you're Instagramming your power, your love to us. To have those fresh experiences with you. To, Lord, at the same time, text back to you, Lord, our request and our desires. To, Lord, let you give you the music of our lives, to set the melody in our lives, to let you be the GPS of our lives, to guide us and direct us, to show us, Lord, the real news, which is what you are doing and you are accomplishing around us. Lord, thank you for what you've given us in your word and that truth that sets us free. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, for those of you that are here in this room and those of you that are listening to us through various social media platforms, etc., I want to invite you right now, if you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to say to him, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want to walk with you. I want, Lord Jesus, to be adopted into your family and to belong to you. I want to encourage you to just say that to him right now. If you've prayed that prayer or you would like for us to be of help to you in any way in your walk with the Lord, I want to encourage you to get in touch with us through Facebook, in person, calling on the phone at our church office, check us out on our website. We would love to be an encouragement and a help to you in any way we can, even if it's, of course, by praying with you and for you. Jesus, thank you for loving us and thank you, Jesus, for adopting us into your family. In your name, amen.